Welcome back, everyone, to the Sound Logic Podcast. And today we are revisiting a previous review we did. Uh, this is album number 65 on Rolling Stone's top 500 list. This is Live at the Apollo 1962 by James Brown. Still one of the very, very few live albums that we have right. reviewed yeah. on this list. Um, this was previously ranked at number 25 on the previous two iterations of this list, um, but has fallen 40 spots here to number 65. Um, I don't think that the voters in this poll would say James Brown is any less important than when he was ranked higher. Um, uh, I wonder if live albums are treated somewhat differently in our world today. Uh, you know, we, we live in a world where there are like a billion uh, recorded Dave Matthews concerts, for instance. And, um, yeah. You know, it's like, it's not special necessarily to, uh, to press record at a concert and get a really good sound. No. No, um, you you could record right from in front of the stage, and you could have twenty people live streaming it. Yeah, you know on, on, you know, Twitch or yep. TikTok or whatever. Um, on the other hand, there is an energy and a enthusiasm on this particular live yeah. show oh, recording yeah. that oh. is exceptional. Uh, definitely better in terms of. <laughs> crowd noise and attentiveness than, than most other live albums that you that you hear today um, yeah yeah you touched on something there ben i i think this is the only live album that we've reviewed so far no, i think and um I, I think we've got one more uh the allman brothers oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah that's right um, but there's not many. No. Uh, there's a few kind of legendary ones that I imagine would uh, show up on the list at some point, like um, Frampton Comes Alive and other mm-hmm. ones that have kind of gone down in history. Uh, but I, I think it, it kind of falls in a category alongside compilation albums yeah. <laughs> for this list. It's kind of contentious. Although live albums, to me, a, a, a live a, a concert or a live album is kind of special because it captures a moment yeah you know it, it is a set that the artist put together and yeah. and played and in some sense it's more authentic than a compilation which is almost never put together by the artist yeah uh whereas a, a live concert is probably has there's more license given to the artist to put together what the set list going to be what order and yeah and maybe even some of the production as well. So, yeah. um, and I, I think there are examples of albums, live albums, that have changed music in a certain way. Like I'm thinking about um, another one from this list that we have not yet reviewed: uh, Nirvana's uh, MTV performance yeah, live in yeah. New York. That not only showed a different side of that band, but I think brought them to another level of popularity um, mm-hmm. in the midst of that uh, strange grunge moment in time uh, so yeah I, I yeah I, I tend to dismiss live albums I'll buy them 
or add them to my collection only for the bands that I am absolutely most dedicated to. Um, huh. uh, as a sort of effort to be a completist, I recently added some <laughs> of the Coldplay live albums that I didn't previously own, but it's not because I really plan on listening to them fairly frequently it's just because i've got them all and want to have them all. <laughs> right uh, so yeah this one I, I, I given all of that i was um amazed by how much this one grabbed a hold of me and yeah. oh. we've, we've said this many times I, I think our appreciation is based um primarily on being able to talk with joe Bowie on his experience of seeing James Brown live, of playing shows alongside of him and having that uh, perspective, I think, transformed the music for us. And, and to have the perspective of growing up uh, in the time and really being exposed to music and with his brother and bands his brother was in and then bands he was in in the time that this album came out 1962 yeah. um, and he was growing he was a boy at that point but he was already a, a musician and growing up and to get his perspective of what it was like to be a, a black person hearing this music on the radio what it was like the culture around the radio that played this music it was really a lot of insight for, for me that you can read about that but yeah. to have somebody kind of parse it out like that was really helpful his enthusiasm of course for james brown and for that music was was incredible and uh really helped me appreciate it aside from that it's a very special album like it's just his presence is special um the way that he plays the way the crowd reacts which is just you know it it's like it's like when you hear a beatles concert you know, and you can you can barely hear anything. The crowd is just going nuts. He had them in the palm of his hand, and this is before like the like if you're not familiar with it, um, and I encourage you to listen to. It, but this is before like kind of the funk stuff, the I feel good, um, uh, Papa's got a brand new bag, like kind of that stuff. This is way before yep. all that, and he was yep. already a huge hit in uh, you know in the states, um, especially in that culture. It was he was a huge hit. Um, his his performance is electrifying. Uh, when we talked to Joe, he told us, you got to check out videos of the, the Tammy concert, T-A-M-I, yeah, which I yeah. did. And if you can, uh, please go see videos of that. They opened, uh, James Brown opened for the Rolling Stones and they've got f full video of his whole performance. And it, I think it was a year after this, but you, it's the same feel. It's the same, you know, uh, some of the same songs. His stage presence, his his uh, athleticism and physicality is yeah. just mind-boggling how he can yeah. do that. Uh, the Stones are quoted as, uh, after James Brown finished, they just looked at each other. They're like, we can't do anything. Mm -hmm. Like, we've, mm -hmm. we've got nothing on this yeah. performer. They went on and they played a good set, but they couldn't touch him <laughs> because he was just insane. Yeah. And the other thing interesting about that one is that it's a it's a – it was a youth uh, concert for youth. The Stones were headlining. So it was a very mixed crowd yeah. as opposed to a, the Apollo 960 was probably not a mixed crowd at all. So yeah, but just, just, a, I, I have re-listened to this album many times. I don't know if you have been since every once in a while, it'll kind of pop in my go. Yeah. You know, there's some special moments and I'll just yeah. go through the album. Yeah. Uh, it's the, the quality, the sound quality. Yeah. 
you can tell it's an early album, but it's pretty good. 1962, it's yeah. pretty good recording. Um, one thing I pointed out when we, and you'll hear this when we talk, when you listen to our our interview with Joe, uh, the way that the the MC kind of hypes up mm-hmm. uh, James' entrance and how he they introduce all the singles, you know, uh, known for a single such as, and he names them all. And in between each, each song, there's a there's a band hit. And they go yeah, up in yeah. semitones yeah. after every song, and the crowd's just like getting jacked. Yeah. And then uh, there's this big fanfare. They play this like fast moving, funky piece as he comes out. And you can just imagine him just sliding out, dancing onto the stage. Everyone and the crowd the is just <laughs> lost it like pandemonium. It, it yeah. is, even though it's just audio, it is very special. So, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Sad to see. Yeah, you did say, you know, it's dropped, uh, it's gone from 25 to 65. I think that the further we saw this with some Beatles albums, I think the further away we get from some of this music, we see it shift a bit. It's making yeah. room for albums that are more recent, and I say like albums that are you know from the eighties and nineties that are thirty years old, but are more influencing uh, musicians today and the listener today. These are still really, really important albums. It's, it's James Brown, you know, so obviously yep. he's a legend and so important to music and modern music. But we see an album like this maybe not being quite as relevant as yep. it was. Still, yep. it's 65 best, you know. I, 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 What do you feel about the shift, Ben? Um, you think it's too much? You think it's uh, appropriate? Yeah, I think you're right. It's making room for other music, but... Um, and I don't know, maybe James Brown is one of these artists that gets dinged a little bit because of his peak or pinnacle being kind of previous to or prior to albums really being a big, a big thing. Sure. Right? Like yeah. we've already tackled yeah. this massive um, uh, compilation of his. And uh, yeah, that's right. And so I don't know, maybe this. Is just an example of like hanging on there to to make sure that he's represented here on this list when he doesn't have necessarily uh, uh, a singular album to lift up uh, to the top, uh, a singular from, studio album to lift up to the top of this list. From, yeah, from this from this era, anyways. Yeah, from this era. There would be some later ones, but but not in this era. No, I agree with you. And um, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. That the, the that massive compilation. Came in at fifty-four. <laughs> yeah, kind of leapfrogged yeah. this. Um, yeah. But anyways, um, yeah, fantastic album. We hope you check yes. it out. And we've said a number of times about how this is one of our favorite episodes of the Sound Logic podcast that we've ever done. So it's really exciting to be able to republish this and to have Joe's voice out there for you all to hear if you missed it the first time. So we've got that review coming up next. Uh, Next week, we're going to be talking about album number 66, which is another one that we have reviewed already, uh, A Love Supreme by John Coltrane. So please join us next week for that review, and stick around for James Brown Live at the Apollo 1962, coming up right after this. I'm Ben, and you're listening to the Sound Logic Podcast. This is Mike. Each episode, we discuss one of music's greatest albums from Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 list. Brought to you by two guys with no credentials. 
Welcome everyone to the SoundLogic podcast. Today we're discussing album number 25 from Rolling Stone's greatest albums of all time. That is Live at the Apollo by James Brown. So now ladies and gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? Thank you and thank you very kindly. It is indeed a great pleasure to present to you at this particular time, national and international known as the hardest working man in show business. Man, they're saying I'll go and crazy. And welcome back, everyone. And we are so happy to be here Try and me. to have with us a very special guest, Joe Bowie. You got the power. Joe, we thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited. Uh, we get the privilege if of talking to me. Joe, even though he's in Amsterdam, Mike's in Canada, and I'm in the United States. So this is a uh, three-nation conversation here. Tri-nation. Uh, we're trying to bring the world together through music, uh, which is something that music is always trying to do. Joe, you have a very long list of credentials, but why don't you take just a moment to introduce yourself? And as much as we would love to talk to you about all the wonderful things you've done, we're going to talk about James Brown, but why don't you take a minute just to introduce yourself in in the way that you want to. Okay, I'll try to do that. Uh, (laughs) I began my career in St. Louis uh, as a teenager. I grew up in a musical family. and My brothers, Lester Bowie of the Art Ensemble of Chicago and Byron Bowie, this was my, my early influences, the black artist group, free jazz. Uh, but at the same time, I was exposed to black music because when I grew up, there was black radio and there was white radio. There was, it was two separate, it was, a, it was a segregated United States. I, I actually grew up in apartheid in America. So that gave us two different musical systems, which we'll talk about later with James Brown. So on the black radio, I remember the radio stations KATZ. That's why I would hear all these early James Brown and all the black music that didn't sort of break into the the big market until later, maybe the seventies, sixties or seventies. So anyway, I grew up and I began. I played jazz. I went to Europe with the Black Artist Group and came back to New York uh, and playing jazz with Stanley Cowell and Cecil Taylor. Then. But I had this R&B in my heart because I grew up playing rhythm and blues in St. Louis. So I went to Chicago for a couple years, about 1975, and I was became Tyrone Davis's band leader. And I went back to those soul roots where the whole techniques of James Brown, the whole style, the comedian, the, the show, uh, which was a standard show in the chilling circuit. It wasn't only James Brown, a lot of artists uh, used the same sort of, uh, this this big show. Uh, So anyway, my idea was to combine my jazz when I went back to New York. I'm jumping ahead. I went back to New York and, uh, and around this new wave period. And I started working with James Chance of the Contortions as a trombonist. James liked me, and eventually he asked me for suggestions for musicians, and I brought in a lot of musicians that I knew, rhythm section, to play with James White and the Blacks. Uh, and uh, we had a history, and uh, eventually I started saying, wow, this scene is pretty hot. You know, the garage, dance interior, tracks, uh, Max's Kansas City, CBGB's. I said, well, maybe I'll start my own band and I can open for James. And that's where Defunct started. Oh, cool. 
uh, we were opening at these clubs for James and eventually at around this time. So we were sort of the first really primarily black band fused into this market. And, but, I, but it was always integrated. Uh, I had a German keyboard player uh, uh, from West Germany, Martin Fisher. That yeah. was his name. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. I mean, my mind is so full of crap. I mean, <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway, the funk grew and became a, a, quite a big hit. And I got a record deal in 1980 and blah, blah, blah. And it goes on. I can go into more detail about that. But anyway, the most important thing I want to relate to your interview about James. When I grew up 11, 12, 13 years old, the first big show I went to was the James Brown show oh, in wow. St. Louis. Awesome. And uh, so that was all part of my music. I like free jazz, but I also like that dance music that that funk and the soul that gave me. So defunct was supposed, I was trying to combine all of these genres into a working genre that exhibited jazz, but was based in funk. Wow, right. Okay. And rock and roll. Yeah. Jimi Hendrix was another big fan. He was a mentor for me. Wow. So anyway, I think that's about it for my, yeah. <laughs> and, and a little brief, a brief, a brief rundown of how it all <laughs> began. Huh. And in defunct, you, you're the trombone player and vocalist, right? Trombone player, vocalist, founding member, yeah. and uh, I'm the, yeah, sort of the daddy defunct. <laughs> <laughs> well, we owe a debt of gratitude to our friend Ronnie Barrage. Uh, I met Ronnie because of our uh, mutual interest in racial justice work here at the Penn State community. And uh, right. Ronnie was our special guest all the way back when we did a review of uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller. And, um, right. and he said, if you're going to take a look at James Brown, I, I've got some friends. And uh, your name was the one that he said, go talk to him first. Um, make sure you've got someone who knows what they're talking about when you tackle an artist like James Brown. Right. And I love what you said about um, the reminder of segregated radio. We've already looked at two right. albums on this list. Um, the the ones that immediately come to mind are uh, uh, Robert Johnson and uh, and his entire catalog is all on one album that's on this list. And uh, the other right. um, is Chuck Berry. And I think uh, ah. both of those albums, along with James Brown, I think have such a massive influence on the white artists that are on this list at the top. But there's so right. much uh, less known about them uh, in this right. country, I think, because specifically the color of their skin and the way that they were promoted uh, or not promoted by uh, major record labels uh, when, when they were in their prime. Precisely. Right. I agree. I mean, Chuck Berry, we're from the same town. Uh, Chuck Berry had a farm. Uh, in Winsfield, Missouri, and we used to go there in the summertime and have picnics. No <laughs> Chuck, Chuck had a guitar-shaped guitar swimming pool. I mean, <laughs> so we start talking about, later on you're going to talk about star time. These were the stars in the black yeah. community. Okay, yeah, I, I put a note in there. <laughs> okay, oh, that's great. So normally... Friends, what we do is we, you know, we share some of our experience. And Ben and I, as you may have guessed, and we've alluded to, we're very new to this album. And 
for me, I'm very new to James Brown's early work and I'm really excited to talk about it. So we want to, Joe, we want to ask you, um, do you remember when you first heard this album, when you picked it up? Do you have memories of that? I do have memories because, you know, my older brothers were in music. So we always had these great records, even though I was nine or 10 years old when this record was actually recorded. Right. Uh, I got to hear this music and it was on black radio. Try me. I mean, these were big songs in the community. Uh, and James Brown, uh, he was the godfather of soul. Huh. And even at this time with Bobby Bird and the famous flames, I think, uh, this was an amazing stuff. I mean, I went, I told you, I went to the James Brown show at, uh, later, maybe at 15 years old, and I was just totally amazed. It totally knocked me off my, <laughs> my rocker because the precise, the precision. James Brown was doing big band, had a big band, two drummers. The stuff was, it was skin, the music was so tight and so calculated. And then I, I don't know if you've ever seen, you have to go to YouTube and check out the Tammy show where this same music okay. is performed from this album. Oh. The Tammy show was when James sort of broke into the European market and the Rolling Stones were on that show. But after James Brown finished, Mick Jagger's <laughs> mouth almost dropped to the floor. He couldn't believe it. <laughs> but he talks about that and that's something you can research later is the okay. Tammy, T-A-M-I, the Tammy show. Okay. And you get to see the James Brown and the Famous Flames in their prime with Bobby Bird. I love the dynamic of the live recording here because uh, the audience reaction so clearly gives us this impression of how much of a star he was. Like they are hanging, they are hanging on everything that he is taking them to, and the the reaction is not just like constant teenage girl screaming like the Beatles early stuff, but this like appreciation for when he's hitting the notes, for when he's like pulling them into their favorite song. And it's like a it's like a tidal wave that like rolls along with the band. Um, that's very very different than some of the albums that we've discussed that are historically important compilation albums. Um, we don't have a sense really of how the fans right. appreciated that early stuff because there's no audience on those recordings. Here we get to feel like just right. how big of a star he actually was. You get to feel the energy. That's right. And, yeah. and you have to we have to remind the audience that yeah. he was all it was a visual, visual show. Great dancer, visual costumes. I mean it was it was a total package. And this is James is one of the he wasn't the first now, but he continued the tradition set by Cab Calloway and uh, these type of shows and that then James became an example for people like Prince and Michael Jackson. They studied James, but this is the black tradition yeah. of total entertainment. Not just hear a yeah. song, see a show. People yeah. that look good with nice hair, had their hair fixed, they had their hair processed. Now, why would you think that is? I'm going to ask you. <laughs> because they wanted to identify with white. Yeah. yeah. That's why the hair was straight. Mm. But, uh, but anyway... Uh, and I want to say about this first album, now, this is not the only volume of James Brown Live at the Apollo. There was a later one, maybe volume two. Or, volume two. Right. Yeah. Which which is more in when I was of the age of dancing, cold sweat. There was a time. But 
So anyway, let's go back to the first one. So the, well, the the second one, the second one was that 1968, I think. 67 or 68. And is that a, you said you went to see the James Brown show? That was during that period. Right? Yeah, you were about 15, so that was that time. Okay, now, and just for a little context, and I, and right. I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but when when I when you say James Brown to me before I listen to this, I'm thinking about funk and i feel good and get on up stuff like that right. at that point had he started moving into that funky style or was it still more the soul style that we're hearing no here? that's when he changed he started okay. moving cold sweat yeah. was the song and it was a number of hits like cold sweat would he he went into this it's the african the redundant, the groove, the groove, the groove. The groove goes on and the, everything sort of laying on that pocket of danceable groove, which was the whole connection with African music. Okay. And, uh, but I remember Cold Sweat was huge. And then from there, Cold Sweat, there was a time Papa's got a brand new bag. I mean, this was that period 67, 68. That, that moved on I Feel Good uh, right it was uh, that's when he switched into the funk and started creating the whole new layer of funk approach for right. many bands to come yeah right right on and, that, and as much as we're not we're not just talking about the funk I was curious in my listening as to when the switch was because like I said that's what I'm more familiar with okay. this was yeah. this was brand new to me I mean and just to touch on what you said about the show I love the energy and I wasn't watching any video just the audio the energy right. of the show is incredible, incredible. Um, you can just hear it from the time um, what's the name of the, the gentleman who introduces them Bobby, uh, Bobby Fats, Fats no. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, oh, introduce the show. I thought you was talking about James Man. James's uh, point man was Bobby McClure. Okay. And the Famous Flames, because when James started, he was he joined Bobby McClure and the Famous Flames before James Brown was a big star. He was sort of in the group with Bobby McClure. Oh, okay. right. James always kept Bobby along with the show in those okay. early days, up through this uh, this first live album. Right. And beyond, he was always using Bobby, and uh, okay. Bobby was sort of the setup man to introduce James. He put the cape on James's shoulders when they did this. <laughs> uh, I love that. And before we go, uh, Joe, I'm just yeah. want to break here. I'm enjoying this so much. You're teaching. I feel like I'm in school. You're teaching me so <laughs> much. <laughs> this I, and, and in a good in a good way, not in a bad yeah. way. <laughs> well, I'm mad. Yeah. And. <laughs> And I don't again, know what to I say. Mean, ben, you know, Ben, you work in uh, social justice, and you know, you talk about racial justice a lot. And and I'm a little more ignorant to it. Number one, being a little further north in Canada, and number two, not studying it. So, Joe, I really uh, appreciate you know talking about that segregation right. and radio and and you know the whole well, we, thing beca- because because right. I didn't. I didn't grow up in it, so I'm still learning more and more about it, and right. uh, I really, I really appreciate because this album and this music has so much to do with that. So, anyways, that's just an aside. Okay. Well, thank you. I mean, I'm glad because a lot of people don't know. Yeah, uh, and and that's that's something that we've talked about on the on the show is 
kind of exposing what's happening behind a lot of these albums. When we talked about Marvin Gaye's what going on, what's going on, um, you know, and that album is just full of those, those issues and is man so good. Um, That was a real eye opener for me as to how impactful that music is. Uh, Anyways, man, the three of us should just, we should, Hey Ben, you want to fly to to Amsterdam and <laughs> Come hang on out with Joe? Man, <laughs> I, I think that we could just talk for days. But anyways, yeah. I'm I'm gonna get carried. I'm gonna get carried away. Yeah, I, I feel the same as Mike. I think um, I think I think I've always had a sense that music has this capacity to speak to power in ways that we don't anticipate. But right. but it's also possible to listen to an album and not get the full sense of the power that the music has if you didn't grow up in the context of the time. So I really appreciate uh, this conversation as well. Do you want to give us some details, Mike? And we'll jump right into that. Details, 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 details. Yeah, we'll do, we'll just do some details and Joe, you can jump in at any time. If you want to add something, you go for it. Okay. Um, Okay. So this album was released May, 1963, but it was recorded um, the year before, October 24th, 1962, um, at the Apollo. Now, Joe, the Apollo's in, in Harlem, is Harlem. that correct? Harlem, okay. New York City, 125th yeah. Street. Okay. Uh, and I'm sure a place that you're very familiar with. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's still active also, yeah. Is it still active? Sure. Wow. That's it's amazing. been renovated and they still do shows. I, I don't. I, it's hard for me to keep up. I've been in Europe almost for fifteen years, but okay. But I know that the Apollo is still active. Cool. Um, so this this whole concert is performed by James Brown and his band, the Famous Flames. That's Bobby Bird, Bobby Bennett, and Lloyd Stalworth. Have we missed anyone there, Joe? I know there's a lot of other, you know, horn players there's and a everything. Massive list of but no, I think you got yeah. you got the basic Bobby Bird. That's the name I, I said, Bobby McClure. But Bobby Bird was the guy with the cape. He's the one, James okay. Brown's point man. Bobby was set up the show, introduce James, create the drama to bring James out. Right. I don't know that we've had an album uh, yet that has as many credits on it. Um, there's about a dozen other musicians that we haven't named who are part of the big band sound that that appears on this right. album. Um, this this really is a massive production, as you were saying, uh, because right. of the, the that wall of sound is created live, and uh, we should be we should be clear about that too. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, in right. those days, you could travel with a big mm-hmm. band. I mean. James was trying to have the biggest impact, and uh, these bands were like families. I mean, we can relate to the big jazz bands like Duke Ellington or Count Basie or Fletcher Henderson, but James was doing that same thing in the dance idiom, in the pop mode. Right. And uh, it was amazing. Fred Wesley, who's a good friend of mine, Maceo, Pee Wee Ellis, who I performed with here in Europe, and Fred. Uh, listen, they were part of the early days. I don't know if if all of them were there, even before Bootsy Collins entered James Brown's group. All of this happened much later. But in the beginning, I think uh, Maceo, Fred, Pee Wee Ellis, they were all part of that. Bobby Bird, two drummers. uh, What an amazing band. Uh, Satterfield on drums. uh, Just endless of great musicians. And, And people were part of that music. As musicians joined, they became a part of the James Brown group. They learned the genre. 
there right. because the family, right, the family, the family. Hmm. It's a home. It's a musical home. Uh, wow. Which also laid the groundwork for how I approached music, and and many artists approach music. How important is it to know that history? If you're picking up a, a modern black artist album, can you can you say a little word about like how important it is to have that timeline in your head as you're listening even to stuff that's coming out today? Yeah, well, I think it's very important uh, to have the knowledge of your history because it's no secret that if you don't know your history, you don't know where you are, and you don't have, you have you don't have an idea yeah. of your future, and this is why. The whole principle, like with slavery, is take the history from the people, take the names from the slaves, separate the families, because what this did was take us away yeah. from our history. Okay, here we have James Brown. We had a 20th century. We created our own history. We created the, the black music, Motown, James Brown. Uh, and eventually they had to defuse that. But that's another, that's a little further <laughs> in the interview, I think. <laughs> So it's about control. It's all about controlling the masses. I mean, I, I look at uh, uh, even the stuff on Netflix, House of Cards. If you look at the House of Cards, that's what we have here. Uh, yeah. uh, it's all manipulation for power. And uh, there's no way the founding fathers of this country, want, even though they didn't want blacks to have too much power, and they had, the power had to be limited. And so what they did, they gave them Christianity, and eventually, as it developed, then they made it almost impossible without going through the uh, training centers of established white culture, which are the universities and so forth. It's almost impossible to succeed, whereas up to this point, bands like James Brown didn't have that. Myself. Mm. I was the last generation before the big changeover to where you had artists who created themselves that were not condoned, were not uh, uh, approved by uh, the educational and intellectual institutions. But So this was dangerous. Interesting. They had to yeah. defuse that because then if I have too much power over, my, over black people, then that's going to diminish the power to someone else. Right. Yeah, I'm taking votes away from Trump. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you get the gist of what I'm saying. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. been an ongoing effort to, I mean, uh, keep music in an entertainment alone category, but not, and the music that inspires too much thought and curiosity is dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we see. I read an article um, because I was looking for some details on, you know, the sales and and how successful this album was. And it was hard to find, but I did find an article that said that this album went to number two on the pop charts and that it sold. All it said was it sold millions, but a lot of it was word of mouth. And this album, from what I read, really took... James from that uh, black culture. You said uh, right. the uh, Chitlin Circuit. Is that what Chitlin you said? Circuit? <laughs> right. It, uh, and and I don't have much experience with that. I saw the phrase, and I don't really know what that means. But took it from there into the into the white audience. Right. And that was 
huge for not only James, but for the whole culture of music. But then as, and this is something that I'm so interested in learning about because I didn't know until you start talking about that, that's that the danger in that, in opening that up to right. the bigger audience, that it's both exciting and dangerous at the same time. And that's, I think, uh, and maybe you can speak more to this, Joe, that's what happened with this album. Right. I mean, James was kept, this is our new territory. So James right. was one of the first that, that fused into this, this new white audience. I mean, but think about the Elvis Presley at the same time, who got a lot of his influence from like Chuck Berry and a lot of other artists. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. uh, but in order for these artists, when they, well, I'm sorry, when James Brown broke the, uh, he broke the mold. And like I said, when you see it in Europe, when you see it, the Tammy show, when you see that, that's, this was this, this was this album that made him break that mold. Try me. Uh, uh, this music was incredible. Night Train. I mean, you got to see the Night Train on video at the Tammy show. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing. But uh, but this was also dangerous. Like you say, it's dangerous. But they learned from that. The businessmen learned. They had to encapsulate this music. They got to control it. We got to keep it from becoming. I mean, James Brown bought radio stations. He had radio stations in the 60s. Wow. Hmm. He was he was becoming a mogul. They couldn't have that. Uh, so buy it up, and then you can soften it. And and, and I'll go. I'll give you a little. Yeah. I'll give you a little quick uh, expression. I mean, uh, explanation of the Chitlin Circuit. The Chitlin Circuit was a uh, which I worked with Tyrone Davis and Albert King. The Chitlin Circuit was the black musical circuit, the off the off the scene circuit, where artists could actually set up tours around America in bars uh, to buy your own bottle. B-Y-O-B joints. You you walk in, you get a bucket of ice, and you you bring your own bottle. Some of them had dirt floors. I played them in Mississippi uh, with dirt floors. But this was the scene where black music grew up. This was the scene that supported black music and and allowed black musicians, blues artists like Howlin' Wolf, uh, John Lee Hooker, B.B. King, that's where they got their start on the chilling circuit. Basically, primarily playing for black audiences is where they got their fame. And they made a lot of money. I mean, maybe not by these standards. And this is why they sort of diffused that. Because, you know, how business is. Business, it's like any business. I'm not saying it's racist, but it's like any business. You buy the small businesses up so you can have everybody at the supermarket. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. 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 So there's no room for small business. So blacks created their own scene, their own traveling scene, their own live music scene, their own record companies. Uh, and some somewhere around this period, they start saying, well, some of these big people at Columbia, Warner Brothers said, well, we need to get a piece of this black market because it was big. I mean, Elvis Presley became big because he was he was doing black music. Yep. He was dancing and shaking his ass. Yep. I mean, but this was this was uncalled, unheard of right. in those days. But he became huge. But his skin was the the correct color for the record labels, and and so he right. becomes this massive star, whereas some others right. get left behind. Hmm. Right, and that's okay. That's the way it is, and that's the way it was, and it and it still goes on today. Uh, yeah. it, 
in softer, well, I wouldn't say softer, but in, in you can't imagine how many artists you never heard of. Yeah. I mean, just like the music I sent you, you would have never heard that. Yeah. No. <laughs> I can't even get anybody to produce that. It's finished. I own it. But nobody, no record company will touch it hmm. to, to date. Wow. I'm hoping. But that just shows you this kind of subtle racism or exclusion in the music business goes on today yeah. as it did yesterday. Well, I think there's a lot of ignorance. Um, I, someone was just... Uh, I was having sort of an unfortunate social media conversation as social media conversations sometimes go with a person who was insisting that, that racism was dead in this country. And, and I said, is that what your friends uh, with different skin color are telling you? And she said, well, I, I don't have any friends with different skin color. And I thought like, bingo, there's the problem, right? Like we still, we still have this unfortunate segregation in this country. Um, sure. Sometimes it's purely by accident, but but when we're when we're not able to hear stories, when we're not able to understand different contexts, uh, we just assume everything is right. We assume that the, the record on the shelf is there for the reason uh, that that it's just a popular one, and not because there's something uh, uh, racial going on in in the way that it's produced or sold. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think uh, my hope is that there's someone who will listen to this interview um who i've never thought before oh my goodness there's a, a different story mm. to the way that i was raised there was a different different story to the right. stuff that i'm consuming um that has more to do with just preference or style or something like that right and control and control uh, uh the boss wants to control it it doesn't matter yeah. if it's black white or green the ruling yeah. class wants to control everything. Right. And this didn't start in America. This started in Europe. This whole Western uh, yeah. appropriation of Africans for slavery and uh, appropriation of music. This this goes on in Europe, too. On a, yep. I've seen it more direct coming from a country that actually imported millions of slaves. But so that's a very different scene. But it's still here in Europe. It's in Holland. It's everywhere. Like you say, South Africa, the Dutch are the ones that created South Africa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's right here. And I, I have a lot of conversations with people here that don't know. But I've said, you don't know because the ruling class doesn't want you to know. Uh, you're not taught this in the history books. You're not you're not exposed. You just think, okay, well, there's no racism. That's the way it is, like you said, like you just said. Mm -hmm. But uh, it is thick. The whole basis of civilization is based on racism. Yeah. And the people who hold the power don't want that to change. <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. But hopefully we can open a, a few light bulbs to go off. Yeah, I hope, <laughs> and, I hope uh, so. And as as we continue on here, we'll see that this album became very historically significant. Um, in 1998, this album was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. And wow. then in 2004, it was one of 50 recordings chosen that year by the Library of Congress to be added to the National Recording Registry, which which is great. Mm. And we, we talked about. Uh, Robert Johnson's uh, collection, right. complete collection, which was also added to that registry. So we see that it becomes not only was it huge 
in that year and the years that follow, but it becomes, you know, a huge piece of history, musical history, as I'm learning. Absolutely. And that's the unfortunate thing with these great music of, of our history. Most of the time, the artists are dead before it's yeah. realized yeah. the importance of it. And that's no accident either. And as, as will, I have to relate it to myself, too. Probably I'll be much more appreciated after death mm-hmm. and the music will be listened to. But that's the way the system works. You're harmless if you're dead. Yeah. So we can make <laughs> oh. you famous. And guess what? Guess who's getting all the royalties? It's not me. It's not my family. It's the record companies. Right. Whoever possesses the rights, which business-wise, most of the rights to all this great black music, Robert Johnson included, are owned by, guess who? The ruling class. Warner Brothers, Sony, Panasonic, they buy up all this stuff. Yep. But anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> well, that, that's that's okay. We uh, we that we like that. Um, and Joe, I hope I hope that you know people listen to your music before you're gone. Uh, yeah. Well, listen, I'm not complaining. I mean, I'm at I'm 66 years old, and I realize now I I finally get it. Mm. It's never intended. I mean, I I thought I was breaking something new out and uh, ex- extending black music, but it was never intended for me to succeed because by the time my music hit the, the, they were already through the James Brown. They had already decided civil rights was already in play. Integration was in play. It was already decided that to limit the power of these new influences in modern music. Right. Huh. Um, this album. No, I, I do believe it. I'm again, I am ignorant to a lot of it, which is why it's it. I'm so excited to to learn about more of it, um, and I want to. Sh- I want and like you, Ben, I, I want to share this story. You know, this is. Yes. I, I don't mind you talking about the political side of it at all because I want to learn it for myself and I want to help share it. Unfortunately, we don't make any money off of this, so the man's not going to shut us down. <laughs> okay, well, great, great. Well, that's why I'm, I'm glad to talk to you guys, because to expose the truth, yeah. I want more people to know the truth. And that's yeah. why I thought this is a great opportunity, talking to some people with a wide open. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and you're not limited by uh, your paycheck. That's right. <laughs> I mean, there might only be 10 people who listen to it, Joe, but <laughs> okay. I, think we're up, I think we're up to 40, 40, 50. We'll see. All right. This will, this will push us up to the new level. Well, if it's um, one person that gets it, that's one one more. Yeah, so. absolutely. Um, one thing we do, Joe, and I don't know if you can shed some light on this. We always talk about the cover of the album, you know, the album art, because to me, that's such an important part of an album. Is you know when when you see it on the shelf and you look at it, and this cover is um, it's like a a watercolor painting sort of right. of people I'm looking standing, at it. Yes, yeah, people standing outside um, the, you the, know, Apollo. the Apollo, and it's got uh, big colorful letters on the top. You know, the Apollo Theater presents in person the James Brown Show, and right. I love that it says that because you described it. You didn't say to us, "I went to see James Brown." You told us, I went to see the James Brown show. Right. And, and I think that's so significant that it wasn't just going to see an artist or see yeah, songs. It yeah. was a production. It was a It was whole an experience. Show. Yes. Right. And 
and I want number one, I love that, but I can see that that would propel James and other artists who did it into stardom. And we see on this marquee on the painting, it says on the other side, it says James Brown and it says voted number one R and B star of 1962. So we get this advertising on the album. Um, I don't know if I didn't, get into any research about this painting do you either you guys know anything about it we can cut this if we don't well i'm sorry i don't i don't know any, that actually it's the first time i've seen that cover but you have to realize a lot of times these record companies after the fact create new covers okay so that wouldn't have been on your original album when you bought it when you were 10 or whatever i don't i've never seen this cover okay okay Interesting. So when I was a kid and also in volume two, there was something different also. Yeah. But uh, so like I say, these this is all record company control. Yeah. They, they make the covers to make it commercially viable. Mm-hmm. Uh, OK. And obviously they're, they're going after the black audience because that was an audience that was I mean, it's a lot of black folks in America. So they were going after that. But as well, it it is interesting that they've kind of in in choosing uh, the watercolor, they've kind of whitewashed race from the audience. Right. Like you can't tell. That's true. You can't tell what the skin color is of the people lining up to see this guy. Right. Um, Interesting. Maybe that does make it more palatable to buy that off the uh, the record store shelf. I'm sure some some record company executives say, well, let's make this uh, so we can. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Blend it in <laughs> with her. Yeah. Oh, man. But that's interesting. That's interesting. Huh. And they don't, they don't have James Brown himself. You see, right. They didn't use the image of James Brown, yeah. which is so such a strong African. Mm-hmm. Uh, his face, his, his moves, his body. I mean, that imagery might not have been attractive to a white audience. We see just like a, a decade later, uh, Mike referenced Marvin Gaye's album. There's this, like his face right. fills up the whole cover of what's going on. And you, you can see right. power in it. And, you know, even just the, the clothes he's wearing just seem so striking. Um, this is not that. And it makes me wonder if there's a way to go back and see what the original cover being sold uh, well, to a different audience. You're right. This cover... This cover wasn't that, but James Brown is the reason Marvin Gaye was able to do yeah. what he. James Brown helped usher in the Black Power yeah. movement. I'm black and I'm yeah. proud. So, uh, and after that, artists had more freedom to express themselves. And actually, by the time I came along, I was under the imagine. I had the imagination that I had the freedom to be truthful and honest with my musical and lyrical context, but. Like I say, that those things were beginning to be shut down because after the the late sixties and early seventies, they said, "Well, we got to shut mm-hmm. this down because this is getting too uh, too real." Yeah, yeah, too real. Um, Joe, one thing that we do sometimes is I'll go and kind of list the tracks, and we do that so that people, kind of, if they weren't familiar with the album, might grab a few tracks and and go and listen to them. Um, and the interesting thing about this album is that when it was released on CD uh, and then later releases, they add, you know, like bonus tracks and a lot of, you know, albums and record companies right. will do that. But the original recording, right. I think only had eight songs uh, if I'm, huh. if I've got it correctly and, and I'm going to read them out. Um, and then, you know, we're, we can talk about some of them, but the songs that I think were on the original were uh, first the so introduction. Now, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? 
I'll go crazy. Try me. Think. I don't mind. Lost someone. Then we got uh, a medley with please, 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 and a few other things. And then it ended with Night Train. And um, then some of the CDs, you know, they have, they have, different songs on there and when we're listening to this sometimes we get a little confused because some of these albums uh have so many reissues and they they right. change it a bit um they change it yeah and uh i mean there's so many things we can talk about the first thing that i want to talk about and the thing that grabbed me right away was the was the introduction that the guy gets up there and introduces James Brown, and he introduces not only the man and the band, but all the songs. Yeah. He he says one by one all the hits, and you can hear him say the song, and then there's an orchestra hit, and each time it goes up by a semitone. Um, and, and every time he says a song, the crowd goes nuts. <laughs> and I've never heard this before. My question to you, Joe, in the shows of that time, was that something common that that um, a, a person would do that and introduce the band and the hits? Or was this something very explicit well, to the James Brown show? Well, James Brown was a superstar. I'm sure that had gone on before, like as I mentioned earlier days uh, with the bands like Cab Calloway and so forth. But James Brown was evolving. He was a superstar in the black community. So everybody knew James's hits. Try right. me, think. You better think. <laughs> but so everybody knew those songs. So when you said those songs and read those titles, that just get got the audience more yeah. fired up. And uh, that was the idea with the technique. Okay. James Brown was a master of drama. <laughs> so you create this drama by having, first of all, having the announcer introduce, name the hits, pow, band hitting on the introduction of each song. This is creating this kind of suspense. And and they do all of that. And, and by the time James Brown comes out, you're just... You're at the top yeah. of the house. Yeah. You're ready to jump off the roof. Yeah. I think you, you can hear that. There's like a moment when he must enter the stage because the crowd just hits this like fever. Oh, yeah. Pitch, right. uh, when he walks out. Yeah, you can you Incredible. can tell the exact moment when you're listening, the exact moment when he comes on stage because they're already yelling. And then when the, he comes out, they just lose it. <laughs> yeah. They lose it. That's James because he's coming out dancing. I mean, incredible. I mean, I know it well. I mean, I witnessed it. And uh, even later on in New York with Defunct, we, we opened the show for James Brown once at the Paramount Theater in New York. And uh, But we can talk about that as we go on. <laughs> and uh, James gave me one of my lifelong lessons. Well, well let's hear it. I want to hear it now. Let's go for it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this was sort of like maybe 1989 or so. Defunct was a young group. We were... Uh, getting a lot of attention in New York area and in Europe. 
Uh, so we had opportunity because James never played small shows, but during this period, he was having problems financially and he lost a couple of radio stations and he was playing shows that ordinarily you would never see James. It was the Paramount Theater in Staten Island. And uh, I remember we opened up and we thought we were some hot little young band. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but I knew I loved James but it, I'm going to move ahead. To we sounded good and we were playing good. But you know, James in backstage, there was like a staircase, like a fire escape up to the dressing room. James sat and watched my entire show, Whoa. like studying it. He was giving me the giving us the eye, and uh, I mean, we were good. We were doing our thing, and uh, but this is where James's professionalism came in. Okay, so now I'm going to cut. We finished. We were great. James had watched the whole show. Then it was a break. I went to the audience. The James Brown band came on. And they started playing, boom, doing their little pre-show. The band used to play two or three numbers before James would even come out. So so they did the show. That's part of the show. And... uh, it sounded it sounded good, I, but then I was we were you know cocky young guys. Ah, oh, we got this, we got this. It's always a competitive thing, especially in black music that we always carry, uh, to, and that's what spurned each other to be better. Huh. The competition. Uh, so I said, oh, I said, I said, oh God, we got this. James Brown band, they can't touch this. Then they started the introduction of James Brown came out. And it sounded like the band reached up to the top of the Empire State Building. It sounded like a different, <laughs> it sounded like a different band. And and by the time James came out on that first song, I just fell to my knees. We were on my knees. I was like, "Oh, oh. the Godfather is in the house." <laughs> that whole dramatic area, and then he commenced mm. to destroy <laughs> us. <laughs> he destroyed me and gave me the best lesson I ever had in music about presentation, about drama, about precision and timing. Yeah. When to enter, when to sing. And he knew that the band was a little soft without him. But when his energy hit that stage, it lifted the entire band to to the top. And uh, and that's when I I said that's when I fell to my knees and started screaming, "Ha, James!" <laughs> <laughs> but that was a pivotal point in my musical career because that's when I realized, okay, whatever you do, do it two hundred percent, not one hundred. Yeah, do it too. Make the precision, the accuracy, the drama, the visual. It's all one. But James James Brown taught me that lesson, and uh, I'm sure to a lot of other people. But wow. his J- James never took it for granted. Okay, he's got a little young band out there open up. He didn't take that for granted. He studied me before he destroyed me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess he wow. was a. <laughs> Sorry, go go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm saying, and when I say destroyed, I'm using that in a very friendly, positive way. He taught me <laughs> yeah. a great lesson. He was a, a yeah. teacher. He was an yeah. educator. He was saying, okay, boy, you want to play this game? This is how you got to do it. <laughs> and uh, I said, yes, sir. Godfather. Yes, sir. Godfather. <laughs> As a uh, ordained minister, I, I really am interested in how different people uh, approach preaching from the pulpit. 
And I think uh-huh. my black colleagues have shown me that there is a way to like build on a sermon um, to mm-hmm. your pinnacle. Uh, so many of um, my white peers read their sermon and their tone is the exact same way all the way through. When I, when yeah. I watch most of my black colleagues, they understand that they're building to a moment in time and with their voice right. and their tone, their inflection. And I think you see that in black music too, that there is a, right. a deeper understanding of the way that emotion is building as something is going right. along. Um, and you can hear it in this album too. Uh, I think the mm-hmm. fact that they have two, you know, the band comes out and plays two sort of mediocre tracks is probably part of that as well. Like, you know, we're just going to play with you here, toy with your emotions. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's all part of that building to the crescendo uh, right, you sort of lay the bed, right. lay the bed that's out right. first, and take it easy. Right before, then, uh, yeah. Hearing you talk about James Brown in 1989, you know this is over 30, 30 over 30 years into his career, right. um, and we, I'm getting the sense of him really owning the the name, the hardest working man in show business. Right. And they, they in on this album in 1962, that's one of the names he uses to introduce him. And you're really helping me understand what that means right. because I often wondered, well, what does that mean? Is it just because just he has an electrifying show? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm hearing all the other things that it means right. that he studied so hard and, he, work ethic. and he went yeah. to – Yeah, yeah, work ethic. Um, and there's two other nicknames that – the announcer uses uh, Mr. Dynamite right. and the amazing Mr. Please, Please. So those are <laughs> two other names that I wasn't familiar with. Um, that is so great that, you know, he has, even in his early career, has all these different personas. Right. Well, like Mr. Dynamite, that was a, that was a favorite because that was about his energy. James could explode. I mean, it was like an explosion. It could go from a batter like, please, please, please. And then then he can explode into a, you know, amazing dance, energy. uh, Think, think. uh, uh, It's hard for me to put it in words, but it's about as in Mr. Dynamite means he'll he'll explode like a bomb on stage. Right. He was a living explosion of energy. (laughs) Oh, man. And, so uh, like just I, I can and I can hear that through throughout the record and that was one of the things that I enjoyed was the energy of it and also the dynamic between those right. uh, slower ballads and even then you can hear the ladies I mean the ladies are going nuts in the slower songs right. um, and they're they're freaking out and then he explodes into something fast paced and everybody goes crazy, crazy. Um, and it's it's just amazing. an amazing, amazing performance. Um, uh, and before we move on here, do you have any uh, favorite tracks from this album? Either maybe in their, you know, in their studio version or on this version. Do you do you have any okay, favorites well, here? I'm actually, sure you love all of them, but <laughs> I love them all. But my favorites, uh, uh, try me. Yeah. Try. I like the ballads, like try, because James was. A lot of people look down on his ballad singing, but he was, it was great. He created his own vibe in ballads. Try me, uh, please, please, please. But also, you know, of course I like the fast stuff. I like Think, uh, Night Train, 
Yes. Was a classic song. Was not a James Brown original, but night after I missed the first oh. song I learned on piano. But but so that's a favorite. And think, I'll go crazy. But I would say my favorites would be Try Me, Think, and Night Train. Okay. From the but I loved it all because I the whole thing with James Brown you. You, you love the dynamics. Yeah. You love the whole show. It was a show. It wasn't a song. They broke it down nowadays to it being a song is the story. But the, James in James's days, the, sh- the show, you went to see the show. And yeah. it might be 10 songs or 20 songs. It might last three hours. James had a new president of stamina on stage, <laughs> which... Which was followed by like Bootsy Collins and George Clinton and Funkadelic. They all came from the James Brown school. We all did. I did also. But they created a new stamina and realized you go until the audience is exhausted. (laughs) It makes me realize just now as you say that, that the fact that we only get this certain number of songs on the uh, original record producing was probably because of the amount of music that a... an LP could right. hold at the time. It's not because the right. show was only eight tracks long or something like that. Um, right. This was just the James Brown show was three hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ben, that's a good point because, and this does happen on most live albums, that they have cut out a lot of the tracks. So the, right. he probably played a lot more than just this. Oh, yeah. I, I'm absolutely positive that he did. Yeah. <laughs> um, I really, you mentioned Try Me, and I think that's one of my favorites. And I love the call and answer. How they kind of call back and forth between right. the vocals and the horns. That's really great. Um, ben, do you, do you have, did you have a favorite or something that jumped out to you when you listened to it? Uh, I think I'll Go Crazy is the one that uh, continues mm-hmm. to come back. And maybe it's because it's at the top of the album. But I don't know. There's something in that. It's not a very long track, but uh, it pulls me in every time that I hear it. It's a great song. I like the blending in the medley, too, the way that they kind of move or roll right in from song to song. Um, there's a power there that, that I think is pretty interesting. And it makes me wonder if there is some intentionality in those tracks being selected together um, to make a medley of music. They probably think, you know, if everything, every aspect of the performance is thought out, they're probably thinking through why why they put these songs all together in the same medley as well. But James is one of the first guys to really start instituting that melody concept. Mm. And it's, it's, a, it's about keeping the tension, creating tension in the audience. Oh, you give a melody yeah. and then pop, and then you change, you move, yeah. you move, you you can't relax. You can't before you can take a breath. It's somewhere else. It's about creating and keeping that tension. That's about the drama. You're you're doing us a, a great service here. This is, massive this favor. Is well, I'm doing myself a service too because I'm I'm starting to write my memoirs oh. and I it helps me. It brings okay. stuff back to my mind that I need to remember mm. because a lot oh. of times you've been in the business long as me. You take for granted your knowledge. Yeah. And I take for granted a lot of things that I've witnessed and seen and been exposed to. So this is a great opportunity for me to bring it back to the forefront. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> is that something you hope to uh, publish someday or is it just personal reflection, something for you and your No, family? no. I, I would like to do a book because I'll probably never be rich. I'll be, most of my wealth will be is in my 
experiences. Yeah. So I'm going to do a book. I'm going to start off by just doing essays okay. of moments. And uh, when they're all com- compiled, I'll have a book, hopefully, in the next five or six years. Oh, awesome. Well, Sign uh, me up. I'll buy, I'll buy, I'll buy <laughs> five copies. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sign me Thank up. You. I'll pay. I'll pay for shipping. <laughs> uh, you were saying about the medleys uh, before we lose that thought there. Uh, oh yeah. So imagine this: you got a show. You play four or five hits of great songs, and then you got a little break. And how do you maintain the interest of the audience? You throw a medley in. Boom, bam, and it's not only a melody audio melody it's a show as people moving they're making movements on the yeah. stage uh, the horns are accenting the band is accenting the breaks the clothes everybody's moving together the dances are synchronized so the medley is an important part to really keep the audience in your pocket yeah the, that whole drama of that melody kept the audiences on their toes mm-hmm. they kept the suspense high you didn't know where James is going yeah. to go. And then after Melody, wherever you fall down to is going to be like, ho, okay. <laughs> you know, when he, when he falls back on Night Train, that's like. Phew. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it probably was never the same that, every time, right? Like they probably mixed it up. No. Keep people on their toes. Mixed it up. Hmm. And uh, the way James rehearsed, you had to, the band had to watch James because his cues were, were done with dance moves. Mm. A lot of his cues were just cued, but you have to watch him. How is, how is he going to kick? How is he going to split? And you have to learn all of that. It's not just learning the song. Yeah. This is very specialized music. It's, it's physical. And, and orchestrated, too. I mean, I think... I think uh, Perfectly, right. There's this intentionality here that I'm only now just realizing. I think it's easy to assume that they're just you know going off the cuff, uh, but, but no, I think everything no, no, is no. thought through and intentional and... Yeah, and not only that, everything was memorized mm. by the by the musicians. And I tell a lot of musicians today because everybody has to read on stage now. That's uh, especially in Europe. And uh, but in those days, you memorized the show, oh, or you didn't yeah. have the job. Hmm. My, my <laughs> first right. job with uh, I was band leader for Tyrone Davis, uh, was another R and B artist in Chicago in those days. But my audition was. Uh, they say, okay, here's 20 songs. When you got to memorize, you got the job. Okay. <laughs> huh. Wow. And not only memorize, I had to have a suit. To match, I had to get a matching suit. I had to, you had to memorize the steps, the horns were taken. So it's all a part of learning and taking the music to heart mm. and not just on the surface in your brain so you can look at the paper and there it is. Mm. And that's what I loved about that period of music. You really had to know the song. Interesting. And this is you see later with Michael Jackson or any yeah. any major acts. Mm-hmm. These this stuff is synchronized. It's learned. Mm-hmm. It's it's memorized. It's it's calculated. Yeah. Ja- Michael Jackson got that from James Brown. Huh. <laughs> uh, that you know that um, I'm going to kind of move us through here to the end because we our time is a little limited. Um, you talked about Michael Jackson and we've already talked about artists. So one of the questions that we ask, is this album still relevant today? And what do you think about that, Joe? I think it's relevant for people who are interested. I mean, uh, or any artists and musicians interested in the whole development of 
what I would call a perfectly calculated, funky entertainment. This was this is the basis. And this it didn't come from James. This, you say Tom Pacey, Duke Ellington, Frank Sinatra. They were using these formats. James just took it down a step, or I wouldn't say down a step, but he took it to an audience that they couldn't go to Vegas to hear Frank Sinatra. Mm. He took this concept of the big band, like Frank Sinatra and Count Basie in Vegas. You remember when Frank Sinatra was opening in Vegas, he wanted to bring the Count Basie band, and the the big uh, nightclub said, well, the band has to use the back door. Frank said, I'm not playing unless they come in the front door. And they wanted the band to stay in a little motel around the corner. Frank said they stay in the hotel with us. But this is the kind of racial elements that a lot of people don't realize. Yeah. That's with Count Basie with Frank Sinatra as Frank's career was blossoming. But anyway, James Brown was executed the same professionalism or with his own unique style. Yeah. Reaching an audience that ranged from nine years old to, to 50 to 60, you know, mm-hmm. it's relevant. I think one of our big questions so far as we've moved through this list is uh, how do we hold um, compilation albums up next to an artist's, uh, you know, concept album or, or just general studio album? Uh, this live album throws this new twist in. And I think it does something for me that uh, the power that you can feel both in the performance and the audience makes it this incredible, incredible time capsule that that I think makes it far more relevant than just throwing all of Chuck Berry's hits onto a, C- onto a CD and saying that this is a great album. I think you're right. Uh, I think uh, I, I'm now realizing I probably would have much more appreciated a live Chuck Berry album uh, to capture the right. sound at the moment in time. Uh, and so I think for that reason alone, it makes this this album much more relevant in my mind than than some of the other stuff that we've gone to so far. Absolutely. I think some of the best albums, including Frankie Beverly and Maze, the live albums. But this is why nowadays nobody wants to do a live album. The record companies I'm yeah. talking about, uh, because it also gives away too much power. Yeah. yeah. It lets you really feel. It lets you really feel what's behind the music. In some ways, it probably also illuminates when a band is really not as good as their studio <laughs> stuff, too, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Or just a studio hoax. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Huh. Because these bands in those days, the band had to be tight, and, yep. and even I learned that. And what got defunct going was the same concept. Yep. Tight. You got to be tight, well rehearsed. There's no take two for a live album either. No. Right. It's got to be on. You got to yeah. be on it. Yeah. And it could be some variables, but the variables are not much because you're playing that same show every night, yeah. 200, 300 times a year. So it was tight. And uh, there's nothing like a live show. that. Had, and James could change it. He could shake his butt. And that might change things. He shifted another direction because the band knew the cues. <laughs> wow. All right. Yeah. And to me, it's reminding me just how calculated it is. When you go into the studio, you do a bunch of different takes, you polish it up, you change it around, you can move the songs around, all sorts of things. You can spend months, years on it. Right. Uh, you do it live. You got one shot. <laughs> you got one shot. And and to listen to this album, I mean, they nail it. They nail like, it. Absolutely. Um, 
it's almost flawless. It sounds so good. And I find that so impressive. In some ways, I find this been even more significant than some of the studio albums we've listened to right. because it captures that moment in time, yeah. not only hmm. – uh, just it's just that one show and the people who were there. I mean, we don't know the people in the audience, but each one of them, they have a name right. and they were there physically there. And now their voice even is on right. the yeah. album, right. their voice, that one person screaming in the crowd. They're right. part of this music yeah. now, well, which is to me really cool. <laughs> um, <cool>. And uh, <laughs> it captures just this period. And not only does it capture it, but they did it perfectly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, <laughs> so let me just add something to that. They did it perfectly. Yep. Bands were well rehearsed. They had work. And see, what makes a band tight is shows, doing shows. And that's another element that has sort of been taken away from the music. They want to keep it in the studio. Keep Now it's about a single, yeah. one song yeah. on Spotify. Uh, but you can never get a tight band unless you play every day. And I still stress the same things with my bands here in Europe. Uh, We've got to rehearse. You got to rehearse. You got to rehearse, and you got to play shows. That's what makes Mm. you tight. But see, but the the music production business—they don't need that. They can work with the studio program. You see, and but you miss so much. You lose half of that live effect. Here we go. Take the power from the artist. The power the artists have comes from the live show. Right. Of course, you know the whole point of this show this podcast is that we talk about all these albums on this list the rolling stones 500 list right and at the end we always ask the question was it sound logic do you think they made the right choice in putting this album at number 25 do you think it should have been higher or lower you know what are your thoughts on that joe well my thoughts are the people that compile these lists yeah Everybody comes from a different perspective. Uh, I would have put it higher on the list, but I put James yeah. Brown as higher on the list of influence. Uh, but that's up to individual taste. But society is about pushing the taste, preparing the taste of the people. So you sort of create the taste by making a statement. Okay, these are the top. Then everybody, oh, yeah, what well, is this top? Yeah. It, not that they have any experience with it. Yeah. We accept what we're fed. So anyway, to, to cut it short, I mean, I would have put this a little bit higher because it was a pivotal point in my life. And it was also at a time of racial relations in the States was making a change. Uh, so this was a, a symptom of a, yeah, of a change in the whole dynamics of the record business, not only the artistry, but the record business. This is also soon after that uh Motown disappeared or I moved to California. They started to sort of dissect this great black music, this chitlin circuit, and try to grab the money from it and, and re sort of recalculate it re- into another form, which is basically uh yeah, studio. And so we lost all the live stuff. I mean, there were things after, like I say, I one of my favorite live albums is Frankie Beverly and Mays, but but you see, the whole live concept is gone. Right. I guess sometimes it's a cash grab for a band that doesn't want to go back to the studio. I think I think more so now what you'll see is these big shows doing a, a video special. Right. Like you'll see a, you know, a big a Beyonce or a Taylor Swift or right. you know, any of those big acts capturing their huge performance you know, with big right. uh, 
monsters coming out on the stage and huge screens and pyrotechnics and all this stuff. And they might capture that, uh, right. and trying to draw people, but I don't think they're like, no one's releasing a audio live album anymore. Well, so they use all these effects, these fireworks and crap, but that was already at the James Brown show without all of those effects. Right. So that's the difference. Now we're using all kind of uh, things that have nothing to do with the actual artist and the show to boost right. the show to heights. James Brown did it with nothing, no special effects. Just him. Just him. And the <laughs> tight Mr. man. Dynamite. Mr. Dynamite. Man, <laughs> the Godfather. Uh, yeah, I would agree. I, especially after talking to you, Joe, and learning more of the history about it I, and the significance of it and how much it changed uh, not only what black music but the white music right, scene. Right, of course. Uh, I would definitely put it a lot higher right. um, on the list because I see the significance. And not only does it sound really good, because we've listened to a few albums, and Ben, I think you know what I'm talking about. Right, sure <laughs> that, I right. that we didn't think it sounded that great. Right. But someone has decided that it's significant and have put it there, and that's fine. Everyone, you know, they had a, a right. method that they had to use. Right. Uh, but we've listened to stuff and went, well, I, it was okay, yeah. I guess. But, right. th but this album <laughs> was really good. <laughs> well, you got to make me a promise, guys. Okay. You got to okay. check out James Brown, The Tammy Show. And you check that out. It might be a couple versions on YouTube. And you, you hear that, then just send me an email. Tell me what you think. And you'll see the whole I, the whole <laughs> dynamics of uh, a black James Brown entering the European market in England and having planned. He was opening for the Stones, <laughs> for Mick Jagger and the Stones. But he destroyed yeah. the Rolling Stones. <laughs> like he destroyed me. So, but that's a great historical piece to see. A lot of Americans don't get that. But just check the Tammy show, okay? I mean, I've I've already got it queued up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think what you're making me think here, Joe, is that um, I was thinking there was something. Uh, like you said, everyone's taste is their own. And so when, when we think about, you know, is this album deserving of this spot on the list? It's really just Mike and I and whoever I right. guess might be uh, using their own personal preference. But you've really got me thinking about the internal bias that I continue to care, carry as someone with a lot of privilege, you know, middle class, right. white, Christian, male, straight, whatever. Um, all of that is influencing my decision on where I put albums on this list. Right. And, and so I can say that this album is deserving from my perspective. And I also have to own my own bias uh, in the fact that yep. I've got my own issues and the reasons for putting these albums where yep. I do. Joe, I guess we want to wrap it up now. Um, but we thank you so much for joining us. I have learned so much and I really, really appreciate you sharing your, your history and your experience. Um, Joe, uh, I want to give you an opportunity if people want to listen to your music or uh, or buy your music or learn more about you, you know, where well, could they do that? You could do go to my website. I mean, there's there's plenty of defunct music on YouTube, www.josephbowie.com, uh, YouTube, defunct, and, and you will be able to find lots of stuff. If just looking, if you search Joseph Bowie or search Defunct, and also all my related projects around Defunct right. and around in Big Band, I did Big Band Defunct, and I took a lot of cues from James. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. We can <laughs> we can hear we can hear that influence, you know. And I and I did listen to to as much of your music as I could before the okay. interview, and I can hear. I love the fusion of all that, you know, funk and '70s funk, and also I hear the the '90s hip hop and all that right. stuff just blended in, and it it's a great sound, um, and yeah. and I really really enjoyed it. I had great teachers. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And uh, thank you for opening some doors that have been sort of dormant. And just to hear about this helps me remember and uh, so I can share further with people in my writing. Absolutely. We'd love to have you back another time, too. This has been an incredible... uh... Anytime. Just let me know. And uh, stay out of trouble, okay? (laughs) We'll We'll try. try. (laughs) (laughs) Thank, Thank you so much, Joe. Okay. But we want to thank our special guest, Joe, and thank you for listening. Uh, And we hope you'll join us next time when we discuss album number 26 on the top 500 list. Uh, Ben, what do we got coming up next? I'm really excited about this one. Up next on the list is Rumors by Fleetwood Mac. It'll be great. And we hope to see you all then on the SoundLogic podcast. Take care. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or through our SoundLogic Podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.